Hello, everyone. Welcome back to A Story of Us, our humanity, history, and department. This podcast, as you know, is hosted entirely by the graduate students at The Ohio State University's Anthropology Department and in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today, we're having a conversation episode with a faculty member here, Dr. Guatelli Steinberg, and a graduate student, Genevieve Ritchie Ewing. I'll let you guys introduce yourselves and take it away. So I'm Debbie Guatelli-Steinberg. I'm a professor in the Department of Anthropology, and I study fossil teeth, of all things, because they tell us a lot about the past, and they record information about disruptions in growth um, of the enamel that basically tell you about periods of time when enamel formation was shut down, which is usually caused by some kind of physiological stress, like some a febrile disease or um, periods of malnutrition. Um, and I also look at growth increments in teeth to get some idea of growth rates in our ancestors. And teeth are a great way to do that because they actually preserve in their structure uh, incremental markings of their own growth. So, um, so that's kind of my angle on looking at juvenile periods of growth. And Genevieve, I know you do um, something quite different, but are still interested in that growth period. I do. So my name is Genevieve Ritchie Ewing, and I'm a PhD candidate in, in the Department of Anthropology at OSU. And I study cultural expectations of motherhood and how those affect women's stress levels. So what we can see biologically in their stress levels, as well as how they perceive their stress levels, or how stressed they feel, and see if what we tell women about motherhood and about what it is to be a good mother actually affects what they think and how they feel in terms of their stress. So that's interesting. So you're looking at stress and I'm looking at stress, but we're looking at somewhat different things. It's not clear that psychosocial stress can have an effect on enamel formation, whereas we're much more clear about the fact that diseases, illnesses, malnutrition affect enamel formation. Uh, There is some hint in the literature that psychosocial stress may actually affect enamel formation in when you cut open enamel and you look inside, there are lines that indicate periods of cessation of the formation of enamel. And those lines actually have been linked up in some primates to psychosocial stress. I know that there's there's quite a bit of literature out there showing that stress levels during pregnancy do affect how children later on deal with stress and can affect things like preterm birth, so different birth outcomes. So it wouldn't surprise me that, that there would be some development that would change when women have stress prenatally or even, you know, when children feel psychosocial stress. But I'm kind of surprised that there isn't a ton of literature out there showing that, that it does affect the tooth enamel. Yeah, and th- there, there really isn't. I mean, in the non-human primates, there's a, a really interesting study where a, um, a gorilla's teeth were sectioned to look at those internal lines that seem to be sensitive indicators of some sort of physiological stress. And what was interesting is that the day that this gorilla had surgical procedures, they matched up with the accentuated lines. This is a study by Gary Schwartz and his colleagues in this one gorilla. What was really fascinating about that study is that the authors didn't know the dates of those surgical visits, but because of growth increments in enamel, which represent days of growth, I mean, one can get very precise information about when these lines of growth disruption occur in in teeth. 
they were completely blind about what had happened. They just identified when these happened, and then they they, they actually looked at the at the records, the medical records, and they matched up with these sur- days of surgical procedures, which one would suspect this was a stressful uh, event for the gorilla to go you through. You would think, yeah. Yeah. So that was really quite quite fascinating. And you're right, it's surprising that nobody's actually looked to see do psychosocial stressors have some effect on enamel formation in, um, in humans. So I have a grad student, Sarah Holt, who's actually interested in prenatal stress, like you are, but from a totally different angle. And so what she's doing is actually looking at the prenatal enamel to see if maternal stress, mothers who are more stressed um, during their pregnancy, and she's got some composite measure of stress, actually have more of these periods of cells that produce enamel stop secreting enamel for a short while and then resume? And are they experiencing these kinds of disrupted enamel growth in proportion to how much stress they perceive during pregnancy. And so she's actually working on that. So it'll be interesting to see. If, it will, if, yeah, uh, because there's quite a bit of psychological literature certainly out there showing that it causes a biological response. And as anthropologists, we know that that perceptions of stress and the psychosocial stress that you experience does cause a biological response. And there's been a strong connection between seeing different birth outcomes like preterm birth or even infant length or infant weight, that having stress during pregnancy can actually affect those markers. So it'll be really interesting to see if she can show that that stress also is affecting tooth development. Yeah, that could be just another way that stress during pregnancy can affect the child. One of the things that sometimes people bring up is that, you know, should we expect to see very many of these stress lines in teeth because mothers, to some extent, buffer the baby from stressors? So I wanted to just bring that up. What do you what do you think about that? Because we don't have the data from Sarah's study yet, so it'll be very interesting to see if they do show up. Yeah, there's been a lot kind of done about maternal buffering, and in many cases, you can't really show maternal buffering because there are quite a few cultural factors that influence whether or not mothers buffer their children. I think there's this prevalent idea that, of course, mothers buffer their children. You know, they're mothers and they put their children first and they put themselves last. And that's just how it is. We've been talking about maternal buffering kind of in two different contexts. Uh, Maternal buffering in utero, so it can happen prenatally, would be that the the baby is taking resources from the mother, whereas maternal buffering can happen outside of utero as well, which is the mother is consciously having less herself so that the children can have more. I think in some ways that has to do with kind of American ideas about motherhood and how Hmm. many resources mothers should give to their children. But, so more the expectation rather than the reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I don't know if there's been a ton of maternal buffering. I don't think there's been much done in the United States at all, partly because we tend to have a lot of resources. And so it's not as much of an issue. But some of the other stuff that's been done shows that there are a lot of cultural influences. So it may not be that mothers buffer all their children. Mother, mothers may buffer children that they feel are more important in terms of status mm. or in terms of society. So they may buffer male children over female children or for, firstborn children over lastborn children. And so there's a lot of different factors that go into that. And it doesn't seem to be as straightforward as all mothers buffer their children because they put them the children first and themselves last. Well, that would make sense. I mean, especially what we know looking across mammals. I mean, mothers can 
you know, in poor conditions can resorb fetuses. I mean, they don't necessarily have to invest in a fetus if they're in poor condition. And it would make sense from looking at the long-term reproductive success of a female for her to invest when her resources are optimal, that she can invest and support the growth of the baby. And we see that in humans, too. We see kind of if the mother is dealing with a lot of biological stress and perhaps psychosocial stress as well, there hasn't been a ton done on that. But if that happens early in the pregnancy, then the woman is more likely to lose the child. There hasn't been a ton of investment. But if that happens late in pregnancy, then the child may come early because the child has a, a chance of survival. And that's one way that the body can deal with those stressors and keep mother and the child alive. But it's also more likely that the child is going to pull nutrients from the mother because it's later and she has so much investment in that child. Right. So it makes perfect sense from how much investment is already given into a child, whether to continue with that investment or to cut your losses early, right? (laughs) Essentially. Yeah. And you see that, I mean, it makes sense that since we are, you know, biocultural organisms, since humans have that that huge cultural component, that we see that cultural component come into that in investment strategy as well. So if, you know, having a male child is what's going to support you later in life and society says that that male child is more important, then it, may, it does make some sense that the mother would invest more in that male child than in the female child. So do you see evidence of that at all in your research, uh, preference for male offspring? I don't see it in mine. But again, um, we're living in the United States, and typically we have enough resources, not everybody, of course, but um, much more than we see in, in some other countries. And so I don't really see that necessarily in what I'm doing. But um, I know my advisor, Dr. Barbara Piperata, who's also a professor here at Ohio State in the anthropology department, that she's done some work in Brazil showing maternal buffering um, and has looked at some of the other literature showing that there is a difference cross-culturally in how mothers buffer their children and who they actually buffer. Right. And speaking about culture and the fact that we're social animals, um, and you bring up uh, Dr. Piperata, because some time ago, I know she did some work looking at social support, and so mothers themselves could be buffered by others in the in the community while they were lactating. She did work in the Amazon. Essentially, lactation is the most energetically demanding period of time in a woman's lifetime, and so what she saw was these women who had social support lost less weight during the lactation period. So, yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting piece of human biology. And some of the questions that she and I discussed at that time were, when do we think that might have happened in human evolution? When did mm-hmm. when did mothers start to offer each other social support during the lactation period? And it's really difficult to really answer that question through the fossil evidence. But one might suspect that it could have happened at the time of Homo erectus as growth periods began to lengthen. Children were requiring maternal support for longer periods of time that that might have put more of a burden on females and social support may have been necessary. In fact, some anthropologists suggest that that must have been true at the time of Homo erectus. It's a one and a half million years ago, essentially, when um, mothers began to help each other and there was essentially a social support system for, for mothers. Do you think that it could be connected as well to when birth became more difficult? Yes, that is certainly possible. Yeah, because as we became upright, right, and as we became bipedal, birth became more difficult and human heads are 
unusually large. So, Right. And so there's some disagreement about that, that whole mm-hmm. obstetrical dilemma, which is a really fascinating idea that says, you know, hips can't get too large or you have inefficient bipedalism, but they have to be large enough to pass a baby through the birth canal with a big head. <laughs> so, so, big that, head. That, so that that <laughs> constrains the amount of of room and so that labor would become more difficult as brain size increased. Um, and there's some argumentation back and forth on whether that's true or not, but it certainly is an interesting possibility. And if that's the case, then we're looking at more difficult birth. Um, maybe females needed help from others just in midwives, essentially, during the birthing process. Yeah. And then maybe if they needed that help during the birthing process, then postpartum help might have kind of right evolved from as there, part of that, as yeah. part of that, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So, in your research, Genevieve, what are you finding right now? What I have found in some of the interviews, kind of anecdotally, is that I, I do hear. I, I'm thinking of this interview that I just did not too long ago, where um, I was talking to a woman who is pregnant with her second child, and she was telling me that she has kind of backed off of everything that she was told not to do. So. pregnant women in the United States are told not to do a lot of different things like drink too much caffeine, actually drink any caffeine, Mm -hmm. don't drink alcohol, just all these different things you're not supposed to do. And with her first child, she followed all the rules. And with this child, she decided that um, she was going to back off of that a little bit and have, you know, a cup of coffee a week Mm -hmm. or something like that. And she's actually feeling some guilt about that, that (laughs) she loves this child less than her first child because she's not following those expectations exactly. And so it does show kind of how strong that that the ideas about what a good mother is can be culturally and how that might affect women and give them stress levels because if she's already feeling guilt about backing off of those and how that means might mean that she loves her child less then that could affect her certainly her psychosocial stress and and Mm -hmm. potentially her biological stress so i'm hearing some anecdotal things that suggest Mm -hmm. that um i will see that connection between the cultural and the biological but um i don't have enough results yet it'd be so interesting to see also um so this is idea for your postdoctoral work, Genevieve. Okay, <laughs> you know to see to what extent those expectations in other cultures are affecting stress levels in pregnant women. So the whole question, you know, of motherhood and the amount of time females put into their offspring. I mean, it's amazing in in humans because we have such long periods of infant dependency and then such long childhoods between the time we're weans and the time we reach adolescence. Some anthropologists think that's a unique feature of, of human biology that we have this period of time of childhood after weaning and before we, we hit puberty. So the question of when that evolved is something that a lot of anthropologists have been very curious about. And one of the things that teeth allow you to do is to look at growth periods in our past. So for example, if you think about this, you know, our permanent first molars come in about six years of age and, and you know, we have this incredibly prolonged period of growth. Our teeth are integral parts of our body, and so they they reflect the overall rates of growth to some extent. And so we can look at, for example, chimpanzees. Their first molars are coming in more around the age of four. Um, so they have shorter periods of juvenile growth, still long relative to other primates, but shorter than ours. And so the question is, well, when did we start lengthening that period of juvenile growth in human evolution? And so teeth have really been quite remarkable in giving us some insight into that, again, because they preserve these growth increments. And so it looks like 
with Homo erectus, we start to see a lengthening of that growth period. And that's fascinating because with Homo erectus, we also get such an increase in body and brain size. So it makes perfect sense that growth was slowing down. And that may mean there's a whole complex of, of other things going on with social support and all of that. So Homo erectus seems to have been this, this mm-hmm. incredible transition in our past with potentially social support, large brain size, large body size, high energetic demand. And then the beginnings of this prolongation of growth periods that we have to such an extent today. Has anyone really looked at, I guess, stress during development and any effect that may have on kind of how the teeth grow later? So teeth only grow during a specific period of time. Mm-hmm. So essentially, they're, they're once they finish forming, they don't reform. So we don't have, it's not like bone with, with remodeling and stuff. But an interesting question that you, that you raised there, I think, is if you see some sort of stress marker in teeth, either one of these lines that are internal to the enamel that I was talking about, or one of the external lines that I was referring to earlier, the question could be, are you more likely when an individual has those for them to have further linear enamel hypoplasias? Those are the surface markers of stress. So that's, I don't know that anybody's really done that. You know, if you have one, are you more likely to have more? Right. I, but I think that's what you're asking, right? Yes. <laughs> right. So one, one of the things that is interesting is that there's some suggestion that in some non-human primates, there might be a regular pattern to the enamel hypoplasias that they may be reflecting in individuals going through periodic stress. And one suggestion by one researcher is that in fact that this reflects seasonality in resource availability mm-hmm. or perhaps seasonality in illness. That's an interesting idea. However, what's interesting is my grad student Mackie O'Hara did her master's thesis on this topic and looked at the regularity of those defects. And she found that only in a few individuals was there this sort of regular repeating stressor evident on the teeth. And what was also interesting is because you can use these increments in teeth to get really precise estimates of timing. Every individual had a different periodic stressor. Hmm. So it seems like there wasn't anything in the environment that was actually they were all responding to. But every individual in the cases where there was a regular repeating pattern of these linear enamel hypoplasias, every individual had their own pattern, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, I asked the original question because there's been some work done on infant reactivity. So looking at stress either prenatally or infant stress and how that might program a child to deal with stress later in life. And so I was wondering if, mm. if in teeth there's the possibility of the same thing. You know, I, I wonder if that that work that you were just talking about that Mackie did could be the result of that even mm. because there's been some some work showing that there's kind of a, a switch so that if children develop a great deal of stress at a certain point, then there's a developmental switch that'll happen. And, and then from then on, they deal with stress in a certain way. And so sets up a pattern. It does. Right. Yeah. And, and some people have suggested that it's evolutionary that you... Mm. For example, if, if you are born into a domestic abusive household, that dealing with stress in a certain way might be better for you. And so because you're born into this very stressful household, mm-hmm. that that switch happens. And so that helps you to survive better because you're dealing with stress in a way, a quieter way mm-hmm. that will help you deal with the situation that you're in. So it's funny because we really come at this from such different angles, and yet there's some interesting overlap. You know, fossil teeth are just are fascinating for the reasons that I was saying, but they also tell you a lot about diet, and mm. they also tell you uh, 
about sort of bumps and grooves on teeth. There's a, a lot of that variation is underlain by genetic variation. And so you can use those to get some idea of species relationships in the past hmm. as well. So it's amazing how much actually you can glean from fossil teeth about the past. And so I, I'll do a little promotion here for myself. So actually, I, I, I just published a book with Cambridge University Press um, late last year, and it's called What Teeth Reveal About Human Evolution. So it talks about these questions of childhood and stress and phylogenetic relationships among species based on dental morphology and, oh, a whole bunch of other things that teeth can tell you about. So, and diet, of course. It is quite amazing that what teeth can tell you because we have teeth now. And you right. have fossil teeth from right, then, right. you know, in <laughs> right. the stuff that I do right now, I'm, I'm taking hair cortisol measures, but I've mm. also worked with people who've done blood measures. Well, these things aren't possible, obviously, from fossil remains, but the teeth allow you to create that bridge between the modern and, and you know, evolutionary history. And, and so it's really exactly. interesting to connect those and, two. And then, to, and then the fact that non-human primates have teeth as well. Right. <laughs> a living so, so it gives you the comparative context. And so you can, you know, test ideas like is brain size associated with longer periods of tooth growth? And the answer to that question is essentially yes. And you can do that by looking at living primates and seeing how that correlates with brain size. So it gives you a comparative context. And then you can say, all right, well, if we have a, fossil hominin with a brain size of a particular volume, where would we predict them to fall in terms of t tooth development? So one can use the comparative context to make those kinds of predictions and then test them. So anyway, I found this really interesting, Genevieve, just because I study some things from such a different perspective than you do, but there, there really was some overlap. I think especially interesting is this the psychosocial stress, which can really have a, an effect on women and potentially also on birth outcomes. So that's pretty fascinating to me. I, I thought it was really neat that you were talking about how you can use teeth to figure out things like brain development and how that might fall into our evolutionary history and, and the connections that that might show with other things like um, social support and the difficulty of birth and lactation and how all those things can be connected and how all of that can start with a study of teeth. Right, right. It's funny how you can, can, can go from there to the many connections that, that teeth have to these different areas. But, but I really enjoyed hearing about your research and I'd be very curious to see if my student Sarah's research shows some of these stress lines that are associated with psychosocial stress. I would be too. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you both for all of your wonderful insights. Um, I know that I, I learned a lot. And so we'll put up a link to Dr. Guatelli Steinberg's new book, What Teeth Reveal About Human Evolution, on our website. So you can subscribe to the podcast and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at A Story of Us OSU. Or you can check out our website, anthropology.osu.edu. And leave a review of the show on iTunes. The more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find the show. We hope you join us next time to explore a story of us, our humanity, history, and department.